Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio John chapter 15, verses 16 through 27 to the end of the chapter. We are in the midst of Jesus' discourse to his disciples, his final discourse to his disciples, just after he has left the Lord's Supper. Some people say that it might still be at the Lord's Supper, but the end of John 13, verse 16, I think it is, somewhere in there it says, Rise, let us go from here, Jesus said. So I'm assuming... He's walking on the way to Gethsemane as he prepares for his crucifixion. Now, in the first part of this chapter, chapter, verses 1 through 15, Jesus gave them the extended metaphor, the teaching about himself as the true vine. We abide in the vine and we bear fruit. And those who do not abide in the vine are thrown into the fire and burnt up. And we examined a rip-roaring theological controversy about who those un fruitful branches were, which if you want to get into that, you can listen to the previous audio. Now here we're going to start with verse 16 as Jesus continues talking to his disciples. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you that you should go out and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Now why did Jesus say, I didn't choose you, but I, you did not choose me, but I chose you? Why would Jesus say this at this particular point? NIV Study Bible, as well as John Gill say that the reason is disciples normally chose the rabbi to whom they wanted to be attached, but that wasn't so with Jesus. And what he's trying to say is, hey, you've got a great responsibility because I, the Son of God, have chosen you. Why did I choose you? So that you can go out and produce fruit. Let me read you a quote from Alfred Barnes. He thus shows them that his love for them was pure and disinterested, that it commenced when they had no affection for him, that, what is, that it was not a matter of obligation on, on his part, and that therefore it placed them under more tender and sacred obligations to be entirely devoted to his service. The same may be said of all who are endowed with talents of any kind or raised to any office in the church or the state. In other words, when Jesus appoints you, there is a big responsibility on you, and he didn't appoint you because you loved him more or because you understood him better, because he, he pointed the apostles when they were fishermen chasing fish. And so this is what he's trying to say here is you have a big responsibility. Now, what is that responsibility? I appointed you that you should go out and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain, that it should, be, that it should persevere, that it should not wither away permanent fruit. Now this word fruit fits in with the vine metaphor that Jesus started with at the beginning of this chapter. I am the true vine. You are the branches. What's the point of Jesus having a vine with his branches? He's the vine. The, the apostles are the branches. What's the point? Just to have branches? No. It's to bear fruit. The word fruit is mentioned eight times in chapter 15. That's the theme of this chapter. Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for the incredibly difficult task ahead of them of starting the Christian church while he is gone to heaven after having been crucified. So Jesus' choice of them showed a great deal of confidence in what he expected them to do. Now notice here, he says, I chose you so that you could produce fruit, so that what? So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Now this is backwards than the way we normally think as the NIV study Bible uh, points out that study Bible says we usually desire a strong prayer life that we may be fruitful. Here it's the other way around. We are fruitful in order that we may have a strong prayer life. We are fruitful and because of that God gives us what we ask. 
<laughs> so what this shows me is that there are rewards to the gospel. You go out and do the work of the gospel, then God says, I'll give you whatever you ask. So again, whenever you see that phrase, I'll give you whatever you ask, people say, ooh, that's great. Get me a Rolex watch. Get me a Mercedes Benz. Get me an airplane. Get me a boat. Get me a condo down at in Hawaii somewhere. No, it's talking about you can do that with a little condition. You produce fruit, and then he'll give you whatever you want. We're working together with Jesus. You know, if we, if we, if we do what he wants, he loves that, and he loves to reward that. So think about that the next time you get depressed about all the garbage that's in this country and in this world, all the sin, all the rebellion against God. You just keep right on going out there and preaching the gospel. Let God take care of history. He'll take care of all these gender-bending morons out there who are trying to destroy God's creation. He'll take care of them. We just need to go out and produce fruit. Let me reemphasize this again. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, that whatever presumes, of course, that the prayer is in God's will. The context indicates that bearing fruit is always in God's will. So if you bear fruit, he'll give you what you ask. We can't go wrong if we ask for more fruit to be produced. We produce fruit, God answers our prayers. So we pray for more fruit, God answers the prayers with more fruit. This urges God to answer our prayers more, and on and on it goes. So keep seeking for fruit. Abide in the vine. Remember, apart from Jesus, you can do nothing, as Jesus said in the previous passage in the previous audio first half of the chapter apart from jesus you can do nothing but if you just rest in the vine let the life of christ throw through the vine he's the vine throw through him into you because you're attached to the vine that you can do all kinds of fruit but don't think that you can use your natural talents and go out there and do it apart from the holy spirit because you will fail miserably john 15 verse 17 this is what i command you love one another now this is a direct repeat from verse 12 when Jesus says this, this is my command, colon, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus is the example. Jesus says, I have loved you, so you love, so you love, Jesus says, I have loved all of you, so you love all of, all of you, love one another. Jesus also said in another verse, I've loved the Father, so you love the Father. So the fact that he emphasizes this, again, this is why John the Apostle went around all the time saying, love one another, love one another, love one another. He's famous for that. Please stop saying love one another, John. Nope, nope, that's what Jesus said. He said it was a command, love one another. Now, Jesus said, this is what I command you. What's the results of keeping Jesus' commands? Look at John 15, verse 10. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. And then he, he uses himself as an example. Look, I've kept my Father's commands. I remain in his love. So if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. All right, so that's the first result of keeping Jesus' commands. You'll stay in his love, and that's probably his love for you rather than your love for him. The, the, the Greek is, remain in the love of me. And that could mean the disciples' love for Jesus or Jesus' disciples' love for the, the disciples. I believe it's, you remain in my love for you. So keep Jesus' command, you remain in his love. In his love. John 15, 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. So that's the second result of keeping Jesus' commands. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, that's the same thing as saying, his commands are in us, and we do what he commands. The result of that, we ask whatever we want, and it will be done for us, John 15, 7. So this is my command. Love one another. It's very important. Love one another, and you'll stay in Jesus' love. Love one another. You can ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. That should be powerful incentive to put up with that obnoxious Christian brother or sister that's driving you crazy. 
John 15, 18 through 19, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, however, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it. The world hates you. All right, that word world is used all through that verse. What does it mean? NIV Study Bible's got a good definition. The human system that opposes God's purpose. That's the simplest definition. The human system that opposes God's purpose. And it's everywhere when you go into business, when you go into the university, when you go to your unsaved relative's Thanksgiving meal. You will see sin in operation at its finest. The backstabbing, the climbing over, the indifference, the cruelty, the hatred, the lack of concern, all of that. That's the world. And Jesus said that the world... It, if the world any means, yes, the world does hate you, of course. But you need to understand why it hates you, because it hated me, Jesus, before it ever got around to hating you. Now, the disciples knew that the world hated Jesus. They had already seen plenty of hate toward Jesus. But Jesus is thinking about the future where they're going to they're start receiving the hatred that Jesus got. He's trying to get them ready. Everything he does in these chapters before he dies, he's trying to get them ready to start the Christian church. Now, here's some examples of the hatred that the Jews had already seen toward Jesus. Let me give you a quote from John Gill. How they expressed their hatred not only by words, the Jews, calling him a gluttonous man and a, man and a wine-bibber, a sinner, a Samaritan, a madman, one that had a devil, yea, Beelzebul himself, and by deeds taking up stones to stone him once, more than once, leading him to the brow of a hill, in order to cast him down headlong, consulting by various means to take away his life, as Herod did in his very infancy, which was done. They eventually killed him. So all of that before they had shown that much hatred of Jesus to his disciples, so they had seen it. And Jesus said, you saw what they did to me? They're going to do it to you too. They're going to chase you from synagogue to synagogue, as he says in the run-up to the Olivet Discourse, not here, which he had already said that, actually, in the run-up on Tuesday before the Olivet Discourse. Again, he's just trying to prepare a realistic job preview. You want to be my apostle and bear some fruit? Fine, but it's going to be some unpleasant things about this job. Notice Jesus says, I have chosen you out of it. He chose the apostles, and he chose them to not participate in the world. Good application for us, for us Christians. When God chooses you for salvation, he doesn't expect you to stay in the world. He expects you to live differently than the world and to get out of it. And if you live differently than the world, you will not be cursed by its sinful ways. By the way, when it says, when Jesus says, I have chosen you out of it, out of the world, it's talking about chosen them as disciples, not as Christians, not as believers. There's a temptation there to start talking about predestination and election, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about choosing them as disciples. We go to John 15, verse 20 and 21. Jesus continues his discourse. Remember the word I spoke to you, quote, a slave is not greater than his master, unquote. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they don't know the one who sent me. Now, Jesus said he had spoken this word to them earlier. He actually had in John 13, verse 16. This was just after the foot washing at the Lord's Supper. He told his disciples, I assure you, a slave is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. And the idea being, if they persecute the master, you're not greater than the master, so you're going to get persecuted too. 
And this is at the sending of the twelve during the Galilean ministry, Matthew 10:24. He said the same thing. A disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. So he was constantly preparing them for the persecution because, let's face it, persecution would be the thing to make people want to say, I quit, don't want to follow Jesus anymore, this is, this is too bad. But there's something about people's love for Jesus. It, it overcomes persecution. There are so many persecuted Christians in the world and throughout history, and they keep right on following Jesus because they know what Jesus has done for them. He has kept them from hell, and he has given them eternal life, and he has given them peace with God and forgiveness for their sins. Jesus says the reason they're going to persecute you in verse 21 is because they don't know the one, the Father, who sent me, the Son. They don't know the Father. They claim to, but they don't. John 15:22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. Now when he says they would not have sin, that means they, don't have, they would not have the sin for killing me. But I came and spoke to them, and now they've got no excuse for their sin of killing me. Obviously, it doesn't mean they would not have sinned in the sense that they would be sinlessly perfect like Jesus himself was. Of course, he doesn't mean that. But he does, he, what he means is they would not have the sin of executing me unjustly. Now, the Jewish leaders had great privilege, but with great privilege goes great responsibility. What privileges did they have? Well, they had the Old Testament scriptures, and then, and then they had the Son of God walking among them. So now they got no excuse for their sin. No excuse whatsoever. Now what this means is Jesus says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But I have come and spoken to them, so they do have sin. This just illustrates a common principle, that it is worse to sin against a greater light. The greater the light is, and the more you sin against it, the, against it, the worse is the, the worse is the punishment. The exact great example of that is the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit. You see miracles done by God right in front of your eyes, and you attribute those miracles to Beelzebub, well, guess what? You just sinned against a very big light, and you just blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, there ain't no forgiveness for that. That's one reason Jesus spoke them to in, par in parables. He knew that they were hard-hearted. He was trying to lessen the judgment on them, Matthew 13, 13. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. That's why I speak to them in parables. He's trying to lessen the judgment on them, because they... He knows that they're not going to see what he's talking about they, because they don't want to see. Now, this verse reminds me here in John 15:22. If I had not come and, sp and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. That reminds me of Romans 5:13, where Paul says this. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted when there is no law. There is sin, but you're not, uh, you're not accountable. If, 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 for example, if, let's say that I'm in a jurisdiction and I steal something. And that's sin, all right, but it's not counted to me because there's no law to get me because the prosecuting attorney can't say, well, he broke that law. There was no law to break. Well, this is what Jesus is saying. Before I came, if I hadn't have been there, then they would not have killed me and they wouldn't be guilty for that sin. But since I was there, now they're accountable. We go to verse 23 of John 15. The one who hates me also hates my father. He's again referring to those who are persecuting the servants and who are persecuting the master. So he says they're going to hate you, they're going to hate me, and then they're also going to hate God the Father. He's constantly tying himself with the Father. I am the one who sent me. The Father is the one who sent me. I and the Father am one. This is all through the book of John. He's constantly making himself out to be God and one with the Father, and he does it again here. He says not only will they hate you and me, they're going to hate the Father. Now, this is a good verse for those who say they love God, but they don't care about Jesus. This says, the one who hates me also hates my father. 
Well, if you hate God, you hate Jesus too. You can't split them up like that. There are about one million post-Aquinas philosophers who have said that. Oh, they don't want Jesus. They don't want the revelation of the scriptures. But they don't want to get rid of God either. So they come up with some kind of God of their own imagination. Sometimes he's a finite God. I like that one. Sometimes he's a remote first cause. Sometimes he's the quote-unquote absolute. Anything to keep God and get rid of Jesus. That's not going to fly. This is the negative way of saying if you love Jesus, you love the Father. The one who hates me hates my father. That's the same, th same thing as saying if you love me, you love the father. And again, that's logical because Jesus and the father are one. So if you love Jesus, ipso facto, you're going to love the father. John 15:24. If I had not done the works among them that no one else has done, they would not have sinned. Now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Now there's two things that Jesus used in order to get people to believe in him. Those two things were teaching and miracles. The teaching, he's just mentioned two verses previously in John 15:22. He said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. So the speaking to them, that's the teaching that he had given. And now here in verse 24, he appeals to his works, his miracles. If I had not done the works among them that no one else has done, they would not have sinned. But they do have sin because they saw the miracles as, as, as indeed they heard the teaching. They rejected both. And so now they proved that they hate me and they hate the Father who sent me. Now, if uh, Jesus appeals to teaching and miracles, if you go through the Gospels, this comes up over and over again, his teaching and his miracles. Why did the people flock to hear Jesus? Some flocked to hear his teaching, some flocked to hear his miracles. And, of course, modern-day crypto-deist cessationists love to say that the only thing that counts now is Jesus' teaching, throw the miracles out. I humbly suggest to you that it would be nice to imitate Jesus' idea here and do both. Teaching and miracles, miracles of signposts, they confirm the teaching. Not the apostles, according to that verse in Hebrews, but they confirm the teaching. And that has a powerful impact on people, especially in this rationalist age that we live in. Now, to show, uh, here's another verse that shows that the Pharisees rejected Jesus' miracles. And as a result, proved that they hated Jesus. John 12, verse 37. Even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. They were without excuse. When they got destroyed in AD 70, don't shed a tear. God did that. They deserved every fiery brick, every Roman spear that stabbed them. They, they deserved it absolutely, completely, because they killed the Son of God. Now, one little problem here. Jesus said, if I had not done the works among them that no one else had done. So Jesus is saying his miracles were greater than all the miracles that had come before in the Old Testament. There's a problem with that because Elijah and Elisha, well, they raised the dead. They cured diseases. They made fire to come down from heaven. Moses parted the Red Sea. Joshua destroyed Jericho. He split the Jordan so the Israelites could cross coming from Egypt. He calls the sun and the moon to stand still. Whoa, those are huge miracles. So why does Jesus say, I've done miracles that no one else has done? Adam Clark answers that problem by saying this. Christ's miracles were greater than those Old Testament miracles in the following particulars. Number one, their number. Jesus did a whole ton of them in three and a half years. But the Old Testament prophets did them from time to time in different centuries. So they didn't happen very often in the Old Testament. Jesus was doing them by the bucket load. Also, Clark says their utility. They were done to comfort the oppressed and to save the lost. Although I must say, Elijah and Elisha raised the dead and cured diseases. That comforted the, the lost. But the miracle, the splitting of the Red Sea, the sun and the moon standing still and so forth, 
was not directly aimed at people's people's uh, immediate problems so they don't show as much compassion Christ did the miracles through his own power the Old Testament miracle workers did miracles through the power of God they would have to call on God to do the miracles so Jesus's miracles were greater than the Old Testament miracles although even though the Old Testament miracles were themselves quite great verse 25 John 15 but this happened so that the statement written in their scripture might be fulfilled they hated me for no reason what happened the fact that they hated God and hated Jesus they have seen they have both they, now they have seen and hated both me and my father in verse 24 in verse 25 this happened the hatred of Jesus and the father it happened so that the statement written in their scripture might be fulfilled the scripture is probably John 35:19 according to the NIV study bible do not let my deceitful enemies rejoice over me do not let those who hate me without cause look at me maliciously I think that's David that wrote that psalm. He's kind of a type of Jesus. People are hating him without cause. Here's one, Psalm 69, 4. Those who hate me without cause are more numerous than the hairs of my head. My deceitful enemies who would destroy me are powerful. Though I did not steal, I must repay. This verse is quoted by NIV Study Bible, John Gill, Adam Clark, and Jameson Fawcett and Brown. And so that seems to be... Uh, a no-brainer choice there that's what Jesus is referring to they hated me for no reasons for no reason Jesus always quoted the Old Testament scripture his ministry was word-based he he constantly quoted the Old Testament as being fulfilled now hating somebody without reason hatred without a cause was a particular heinous crime to the Jews here's a quote from John Gill hatred without a cause is equal to the to the to the three capital transgressions idolatry, adultery, and murder, all of which the penalty, the penalty for all of which was, murder, was uh, execution. Hatred without a cause is equal to the three capital transgressions, idolatry, adultery, and murder, for which they say the first temple was destroyed. So hating Jesus without cause was a serious, serious bad decision. Very bad career choice. All right, we now go to John 15, verses 26 and 27, and we'll finish up this audio in, the cha in John chapter 15. When the Counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. You also will testify, because you have been with me from the beginning. Two people testify about Jesus, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, and you, the disciples, will testify about Jesus. Now, when Jesus refers to the Counselor, that word Counselor means advocate, as in a lawyer is an advocate for his client, the Holy Spirit will Defend us against all charges, if you will, lodged against us by the evil one, by Satan. So the counselor comes. The one I will send to you from the Father. You notice Jesus sends the counselor and, he, and the Holy Spirit comes from the Father. That means the Father sends the counselor. So that means the Father and the Son fill, send the counselor, send the spirit of truth. Now, there was a huge controversy between the East and Western empires over this very idea of exactly how does the Father send the Holy Spirit. Does he send it in conjunction with the Son and the Son, which is filioque in Latin? This is the famous filioque controversy. The Father and the Son together, if you'll see them on the same line horizontally, and then in between them, an arrow dropping down, and below that is the Holy Spirit. So the Father and the Son jointly send the Holy Spirit. That is the Western Church's view, the Catholic Church's view, and the Eastern Church's view is uh, the Father sends the Son. And then the Son sends the Holy Spirit in a vertical line. Line 1 is the Father, line 2 is the Son, and line 3 is the Holy Spirit going down. This verse seems to me to 
to favor the Western Church's view because it says, I will send the Holy Spirit to you from the Father. So it sounds like Jesus and the Father are both sending the Holy Spirit, which is what the Western Church believes. Now, you could make a case for the Eastern Church. I will send to you the Holy Spirit, which has come from the Father to me previously. I mean, you know, you can get around that verse if you want, but it sounds to me like it's talking about the Father and the Son, both sending the Holy Spirit. Now, if you ask me why that matters, I have yet to figure out why it matters. I remember a professor at the University of South Carolina telling our class that there were whole shelves of books in the college library, in the university library, talking about the filioque controversy in case I might want to read about it at some time. It's when theology gets mixed up with politics, and after a while, the theology doesn't mean anything. Well, anyway, a lot of people in the Eastern and Western Church are still divided over that momentous issue. I don't really care. When is the Father going to send, when is the Son going to send the Holy Spirit from the Father at Pentecost? He's called the Spirit of Truth. Well, first of all, he's also called Counselor or Advocate. A counselor is like a legal counselor. John 14, 16, last chapter. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. John 14, verse 26, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, the Father will send him in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. Notice that Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Truth. I assume that means the Holy Spirit will lead anybody who is possessed of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will lead that person into truth, all truth that you need. That's pretty, that's something that the average person in the world cannot understand. It's opaque to him. But all Christians who know the Holy Spirit know how true that is. They know what it means to be led by the Holy Spirit. I remember in my rationalist phase in my youth, I had, a, had, I had the worst time picturing what in the world does this mean? Well, once you experience being led by the Holy Spirit, you'll know what it means. And you know that Jesus knew exactly what he meant when he said, I'm going to send the Spirit to you. He sent it, he sent it to the apostles, of course. And then, of course, the same experience to Christians later on all throughout history. Now, I said this earlier, I'll say it again, the Holy Spirit will testify testify about me, verse 26, verse 27, you also will testify, you apostles will testify. So you see, you have the apostles going around preaching the gospel, and they are preaching the gospel with the aid of the Holy Spirit, who also testifies. They both testify together, the Word and the Spirit, in conjunction, not in opposition to one another. Why will you testify? Why will you apostles testify? Because you have been with me from the beginning. They could say everything that anybody needed to know about Jesus because they experienced living with him for over three and a half years, for about three and a half years or so. Let's go back one more time to this idea of the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father. You know, you can say you can take this as the eternal generation of the Son or the eternal generation of the Holy Spirit and this Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father from all eternity. The NIV Study Bible suggests this and says that's probably not what it is, and I agree with that. I don't think that's what it is. The NIV Study Bible says probably what this means is the Spirit has been sent to do the Father's work on earth. So the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father in order to do the work on the earth, not from all eternity, but just to do the work on the earth. Not that the former is not true, but the special reference here is to the Holy Spirit doing work on the earth through the apostles. And that's the context because Jesus is... Telling them, telling them to go out and do fruit. He's preparing them for the ministry that they're about to engage in. Ladies and gentlemen, I am now finished with John chapter 15. We will continue with this last discourse of Jesus on the way to Gethsemane in chapter 16 in the next audio. I hope you listen to that one. 
and I hope you enjoyed this one.